Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My first guest of the morning has joined me on the line. Hello, Bernard Callio. How are you? Oh, Richard Watts, so good to hear your voice. Yes, I'm very well, very well. Um, how are you? I know how you are. You're slightly flustered. Yes. Uh, as I said, <laughs> kerfuffles with 86 trams and the like, not a, not a great way to start the morning. So, uh, But got here in the end. That's the main thing. Uh, indeed, and, indeed. And every kind of roughly every month and time is flexible we know that time is an illusion lunchtime doubly so to and yes. in, including kind of monthly segments to to almost quote douglas adams but <laughs> one of the the reasons that you join me every month is because we both love comic books and i have to thank you very much for kind of getting me hooked on some early comics and oh a mutual friend uh, first put me onto the dark knight returns which is my introduction to the contemporary world of, of comics and graphic novels and what they've grown into. But um, uh, the Swamp Thing comics, which I've been rereading at the moment uh, by Alan Moore and other and a few other artists, I don't know about you, Bernard, but during lockdown, during isolation, uh, I've been retreating to known and comfortable things. So rereading fantasy novels I used to love, listening to old albums, still watching some new TV and so forth, but there is something nourishing in nostalgia for me at the moment. So I've been rereading Alan Moore's run of Swamp Thing, beautiful comics, and I wanted to thank you formally on air for introducing me to them many, many, many years ago. Ah, oh, Richard, it's such a such a such a pleasure and, a, and an honour, really, to have been the the, the passer honour. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the technical technical term of those. Indeed, as you say, really beautiful, beautiful comics. Not least because of uh, one of uh, Moore's collaborators, in particular, a man called John Totalbin, who inks, who you know, does puts the black ink down on many of the much of Alan Moore's run of of. Swamp Thing, and just does uh, stunning uh, hatching work, so that really Swamp Thing of that uh, late 80s, early 90s, really looks like no other comic possibly before, or even since. Uh, it has this very, you know, it, it, there's, an, there's a writing texture to it, of course, that's brought to us by Moore, but, but I would say Totalbin's contribution to that muck monster, which of course is what the swamp thing is. It's, a, it's, it's basically a piece of the swamp walking around in human form. Um, is, is really given uh, the, 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 the grit, the feel, the, the texture uh, really comes through in that total Bernard work as well. It really sets the tone, I think. And, and I, I, always, always, um, I was showing them to one of my sons the other day, that the old Swamp Things and those, those Swamp Things, and, and he was remarking on the sort of advisory label which is on the covers which is sophisticated suspense <laughs> which i think is code for not for you kids you know uh, dangerous dangerous um uh, uh, you know adults only sort of uh, yeah well, I think they... it's certainly the uh, the success of swamp thing and the darkness both of the narrative i mean uh, i recently reread an issue in which kind of the uh, the female lead soul is plucked out and sent to hell there's some mm. dark supernatural themes there there's some confronting imagery um, 
but it's the success of Swamp Thing that then led to uh, what has just, I think, only recently been wound up at DC, the Vertigo imprint, which was their kind of stories for mature readers brand to differentiate kind of the this more sophisticated adult style of comic book storytelling uh, as opposed to the more traditional garish superhero more simple, more colourful, which is not to say that superhero stories can't be complex as well, as we've we've seen over... They've perhaps got a little bit too complex, certainly a little bit too, <laughs> sefere- too self-referential sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, look, I think that that's true, and, and, and it is a very complex question to, to unpick, but sort of one, one of them is just about that question of expectation. What are you expecting when you pick up that uh, um, that, that that comic, you know? And, so that, and, that's, and that's, I think, what... Vertigo gave us that line of comics, as you say, sort of uh, ushered in or, or John the Baptisted by Alan Moore's uh, work on Swamp Thing. Um, it, it just gave a corner of comics for for if you know you're interested in that dark uh, subject matter. Uh, that, that you know that that's where well certainly creators could go, and and of course uh, after that readers. And what Vertigo did was it sort of in a way, it's not quite true, but sort of gave a place for the underground of comics, the underbelly of comics, the, the, that exploration of darker themes to be published and, and thus distributed and all that, all that sort of um, uh, part of the mechanism of comics, the commercial mechanism of comics, to be uh, embraced or, or, or shared by a major company, in this case DC. Yeah, so very interesting period i suppose of of this of this quite strange art form as all art forms straddling the commercial and the and the inverted commas artistic i suppose but you know that that yeah part of that amazing story of of commercial comics and i thought i suppose uh, i certainly did want to talk today a little bit more about uh alan moore because of all these Emmys that have been uh, nominated for the Watchmen TV series uh, um, <clears throat> adapted from his 1986 series Watchmen. Um, and just to pick up on the idea that that series, which I've, I must say I've not, I've not seen, but really what it seems to be just from reading about that TV series is that it's taken... Some of the trappings of Watchmen, but actually is using it to look at racism in America, which is not what the series is about. Um, but I think it's a a great. It, so it's not a, in my mind an adaptation. It's it, it, it actually using the um, tropes, I suppose, set up by Watchmen to actually press in against this. Dark wound in the in the American uh, psyche. I'll jump. That's... I'll jump in there at that point, Bernard. I'm about halfway through watching the series, and yeah, oh. what it's doing is um, and fantastic to see so many Emmy nominations for it over in the states. Because what the series has done, as you say, yes, it's it's kind of looking at that dark wound in the American heart. It opens with the Selma massacre. Uh, sorry, not the Selma massacre. The um, Tulsa. The Tulsa Massacre in the 1920s. And it's an incredibly... It's, that's how I first heard about the Tulsa Massacre. It's an incredibly dramatic and powerful cold opening to the show. Um, but what it does, it, it takes the complexity uh, and the kind of the ideas of Watchmen and it, ri- it kind of riffs off them in the way that a songwriter might hear 
another band playing a tune and mm-hmm. instead of covering it they they are inspired by it to create greater richer deeper darker kind of uh, musical chords that you can see the 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 connection between song one and song two but song two yep. is a completely different beast and that's what the Watchmen tv series is doing and particularly if you've if you're a fan of the original comic uh, you will recognize and and enjoy elements uh kind of uh, a group of villains inspired by the comic uh, the comic book character rorschach for example um, yep. the idea that some of the characters from that comic still exist but it's it's a very different beast. It's uh, I definitely recommend. I believe I can't remember which streaming service it's showing on locally, but it is available locally. It's also been released on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, oh, look, to, to me that's a that's about a million percent more interesting, noble, all those things than say the uh, you know and as straight in, in inverted commas adaptation like that, like the, another another the film version of Watchmen. It's just it's just that using that original material to, to, to and and teasing at it and using it to 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 do to make another point to to to, to, to complexify and make more rich uh, 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 the real world problem, but also the original work i just think that's it's you know i can't wait to can't wait to see it and talk to you about it yeah that's great and just before we move on to some more contemporary comics i just wanted to uh, one of the reasons uh that i wanted to mention swamp thing as well uh, I've been. I own the original comics. These were published back. I think the Moore's first Swamp Thing was published back in 1984. So the original comics are hard to get by. They have all been reprinted. I think there's a series of six or seven trade paperbacks that anthologise the Alan Moore kind of run on Swamp Thing. Uh, DC are now releasing them as the kind of uh, what do they call them? Uh, the kind of the ultimate collection or oh, sorry absolute so uh if you've seen the absolute watchman or absolute sandman they're big heavy hardcover kind of larger than life-size kind of uh compilations uh in the case of swamp thing they're recoloring the original comic which i'm not <gasps> i i know i gasped as well pretty much when i heard that news because the original coloring of those comics is exquisite and adds so much to the tone and the mood and the mystery but for this new deluxe hardcover kind of edition the first volume of which has been printed and i think is almost out of print with more to come but yeah. yes i'm not sure about how i feel about changing uh, the coloring because again that's such an integral part of the book there is an in- there is an interesting technical uh, aspect there, which is of course that usually uh, in their original format, co- comics comics are, or you know comics are printed on usually on terrible paper. Basically, what you know people often refer to as toilet paper, like it's very it deteriorates. It, it's quite it's a bit yellow, and so what of course those original colorists were doing was coloring the comic to and, and which was taking into account the the. Uh, the substandard, I suppose, really, if, uh, 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 paper quality. So you'd, you'd be colouring and knowing that the the, uh, the the brilliance of your colours will be dulled by the absorbency of the paper and, and its sort of slight yellowness. What happens when they make, uh, I suppose, an absolute, you know, a beautiful edition where it's printed on lovely white paper uh, is that the, that the, the colours pop a whole lot more. So what you can get is a sort of a strange sort of um, pop as in, you know, if, if you use the same colouring palette or the same colouring, um, um, the colouring, it, it will become extremely garish uh, on a better paper. So that may be a, um, 
maybe a, a consideration in the re, in the recolouring. The other thing I just want to say is that those original Swamp Things were coloured by Tatiana Wood, uh, who is a really big part of a, a, a comics history. Uh, uh, she was the partner of Wallace Wood, who was a great comic book artist uh, in the 50s on those EC comics, uh, Mad um, and Two-Fisted Combat and stuff like that. So she's, you know, the, the fact that Tatiana Wood was colouring those Swamp Things, another part of the team, you know, those Swamp Things are uh, one of those great symbiosis, uh, you know, to, to use a biological uh, metaphor, uh, term uh, talking about Swamp Thing um, just you know, a great team came together to produce those books and, and Wood's colouring is, is part of it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you I think the colouring in those Swamp Things um, you know, it was very moody and swampy and organic uh, all those things. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. one of the reasons I raised colouring as well is because I wanted to uh, quickly talk about a, a comic that I've read recently and it is a, effectively a graphic novel rather than a collection of comics published in trade paperback format. It's been designed and published as a, a, a trade paperback. It's by an Irish comic artist, Declan Shelby, who's best known... He does a lot of work for, I believe, the, the big American companies and their superheroes. But uh, he's... he's also going from being a, uh, an illustrator, a drawer, to a writer. So I picked up one of his earlier books, Savage Town, which is set in Limerick and riffs off the, the kind of gang violence and uh, organised crime of Limerick in Ireland some time ago. Savage Town, an interesting book, but not necessarily completely successful. I think it was envisaged as the first in a trilogy. Uh, but his latest book is called Bog Bodies, uh, so written by Declan Shelby, um, illust drawn by uh, Gavin Fullerton, and with uh, the colouring is by Rebecca Nalty. Uh, I think it's an all-Irish team, and this is a really exquisite dark, moody book. Again, gang violence. You've got a, a young kind of member of an organised criminal gang who is doesn't realise it, but he's being driven out into the uh, the mountains outside uh, Dublin to be killed. He's stuffed up oh. something by order of the gang. Um, he escapes and goes on the run uh, and meets a young woman who's also kind of hiding from something or someone or perhaps I should say something. Uh, there is So the way he gently eases in a hint of the supernatural and Irish legend into this story, which the title Bog Bodies, of course, references the bodies found in European bogs that were sacrificed, uh, kind of, we don't know exactly why, from the, the uh, kind of, I guess, very, very late BC into early AD, but through into Roman times. So perfectly and weirdly preserved by the, the tannin in the bog turning the skins to leather. So that gets referenced and acknowledged in this. It's a crime story, but it's... Uh, Bernard, you would love Bog Bodies, I yeah. think. Um, when yeah. we can see each other in the flesh again, I will happily lend it to you. It's dark, it's bleak, um, uh, it's a really interesting and I think significant advance from uh, Savage Town, uh, Declan Shelby's earlier comic, which is also available as a graphic novel from, uh, from Image Comics. Oh, from Image. They're both okay. So they're published by Image, yeah, right. Yeah. So an American company, yeah. Great, great, great. Well, that's yeah. I look really, I really look forward to that. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, uh, what else did I wanted to say? Oh, yeah, I wanted to uh, talk about 
some big news in comics just in the last week, uh, and also uh, uh, sort of in the uh, Black Lives Matter um, space, I suppose, uh, is that a guy called Ben Passmore, P-A-S-S-M-O-R-E, has been... um, signed up to Pantheon, a big uh, publisher in America, a, a, you know, a book book publisher uh, who also published comics. Um, and uh, he has been signed up to produce a book called Black Arms to Hold You Up, which is going to be a, a graphic history uh, about six black activists and their armed resistance to racism and the police state. Now, listeners uh, will be able to, as I did last night, uh, go online and find Ben, ben Passmore's uh, short story, 11-page story, called Your Black Friend. So the story is called Your Black Friend by Ben Passmore. So if you put those words in, you'll, it'll turn up. And you can read it online. It's available as... You can, you can buy it as a physical object, but it's also available to be, to be, to be written. To be written, to be to be to be to be read. So that's that's past more, and that's just very uh, 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 the sort of big news in comics this week because the um, is it the advance? I think it's the advance that you get as 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 the author to, to from the publisher has been uh, is significant. So that's a, a great um, investment by Pantheon and uh, and a great. Uh, step forward for for Ben for Ben Passmore and his and his cartooning. Although I do note, uh, Richard, that uh, one of his uh, intervening books uh, uh, was a book uh, about horror and gentrification, Ooh. Uh, uh, <laughs> which sounds pretty damn fine. Um, um, what else do I want to talk? I'm going to have oh, to wrap you up in yeah. a sec, Bernard. We're, we're just okay. about out of time, but great. All right, and so the other thing to look at uh, is the uh, uh, Cabramatta by Matt Huynh, H-U-Y-N-H, Cabramatta by Matt Huynh, which was nominated for an Eisner Award at the San Diego Comic uh, Con, which was at home uh, last weekend. And the, so Cabramatta by? Matt Huynh, H-U-Y-N-H. So he's an Australian uh, uh, artist, and uh, it's, it, you can find it on the Believer site and it's a remarkable motion comic so you sort of scroll through it and the, the panels appear one on top of the other like a palimpsest on your computer screen of a comic it is a remarkable sort of uh, uh, a depiction of Cabramatta in the 80s uh, when uh, the Cabramatta train in Sydney was known as the Smack Express Sounds intriguing and I will definitely yeah. have to check that one out as well as well as uh, do, ben, do, do. ben Passmore's work from Pantheon yeah. Comics yeah. Indeed, indeed Absolutely. Bernard, thank you for joining us. I'm sorry we've run out of time. I could happily chat to you for ages. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let's do that. Uh, uh, Anyway, let's talk again in a month and and, uh, see you soon. Have a great show. You look after yourself. Thank you. Bye, Richard. Photographer Suzanne Phoenix is based out at the edge of Melbourne and has been documenting uh, the Yarra Valley. Suzanne, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Richard. Now, kind of residents out at, uh, in the Yarra Valley, I think some kind of probably don't necessarily consider themselves part of Greater Melbourne. So there must have been a little bit of shock when the area went back into lockdown. Uh, yes, there was a lot of people who, who didn't consider they were part of Greater Melbourne and were quite shocked by that news. 
um, yeah, including my partner. So, yes, it was a bit of a shock. Now, which also then must, that the new lockdown must impact on your work because as part of this series of portraits that you've created, the isolation portraits, you visited over 60 households to kind of show and document uh, life uh, for people in the upper kind of Yarra Valley, their houses, their farms, their gardens, their animals, including pygmy goats and, uh, pygmy goats and sheep. Yeah. So kind of for you, given that you were able to go out and, and travel and document people's lives, what's, before we start to talk about the, this series of uh, documentary images, what's it been like for you to go back into lockdown? Um, it was a bit more challenging than the first time around for me personally. Um, and I think, the, I think people feel very different out here. I think a lot of... Um, yeah, I certainly... Sorry, you were asking me to talk about myself. Um, the first time around was challenging. The second time around was a lot more challenging. Um, and the first time around, I all of my work was cancelled and uh, everything I had planned photographic-wise was, was taken off the agenda, so live music and music festivals, events, all that kind of thing was taken, taken off the agenda. Um, and so the project gave me a bit of a way to get back out there and photograph. I did um, wonder whether the... the the, the, the photographic series had begun as a way, not for you necessarily to fill the time, but mm. if, if your creative energies can't flow in one direction, finding a new way for them. Absolutely. I really um, have learnt through this last few months how critical it is for myself to be able to get out there and photograph and work creatively and how that um, helps me... You know, it, it, it fills me up. It, it brings me life and it, you know, it, it's a way I navigate the world. Um, and without it, it's very different for me, yeah. <laughs> so what was the response of uh, your kind of photographic subjects when you kind of said, I want to create this kind of documentary series of black and white images showing life kind of in this time, in this region? Were, were some people hesitant to participate at first until perhaps they saw the images you were creating or did people embrace the idea from the beginning? Um, so I actually did two stages of the project. So the first stage, pretty much everyone I approached was really interested and really keen um, and very willing and just... For, but I was one of the few people that was actually coming to where they live, they were seeing and they were able to talk with and people were that I approached were very much keen to have that time documented for them. It also gave them something else sort of to focus on that day and it gave them a good experience for that day. The second time around I did it where, where things had actually been relaxed a bit more and restrictions were more relaxed was actually a lot harder um, and people, I had a lot of no's and I had a lot of non-responses um, so it was, it was a lot harder the second time around and I think people were starting to feel like they were getting back into life again um, and getting back to their usual busyness. Um, so it was actually harder the second time around. And I had spent quite a few weeks deliberating on whether to do a third round or not. And I kind of decided a week or so ago and put it out to about 14 people I had on a list who said they were interested. And so far I've had 
not a single response. So I don't know that a third round will happen at all. Well, it's interesting the the way that people's responses are changing, as you say, the fact that in the third, first stage, once we've come out of lockdown and we can, can begin socialising again and you can kind of visit kind of more than one person mm. at a time, people saying, yeah, come and take part. But once their lives get too busy, yeah, it, it's yeah. kind of the fact that um, it would almost be an intrusion in their lives and perhaps a reminder that, um, that they had yeah. been isolated and they didn't need that documented anymore. Yes, that's that's probably very true, very true. And I think people were keen and keen, really keen to go back to life. Although a lot of people said in the first round, we like, we'd like this to go on for a really long time, and we really enjoyed the quiet. And um, but but once the reality shifted, I think um, it certainly seems most people were keen to not be in lockdown anymore. Now, in terms of the people you have documented in uh, in the series, uh, a lot of people are photographed in kind of quite intimate surroundings, in their home, with their pets, with their family, leaning through windows. Others, uh, there's one quite striking image of uh, somebody standing kind of uh, in an area that uh, has been logged and perhaps burnt as mm. well. Uh, so talk to yeah. us about how you chose the subjects and how the, the what kind of choice did the subjects have in how you have presented them? So the, the subjects had a lot of choice in how they were presented and I really, in, one of the aspects I really enjoy this pro, um, series is giving people the opportunity to create whatever images they want with me. So, um, you know, there's, there's, there's an image of a woman with a, um, a lobster telephone and roses coming out of her head. That's what she wanted to do with her image and I was like, okay, sure, let's do whatever. Um that, you know, there's real freedom in that and I, you can create images that wouldn't otherwise be made when you get to let the subject do whatever they want. Obviously, I'm looking for a nice light. I'm looking for a nice, you know, um, composition that will work, um, but really letting people show me what they like about where they live and, you know, going to a place where it had been logged, um, you know, a year or so ago, that was that person's choice on, you know, that was what isolation meant for them and... Um, yeah, I think there's real freedom in that, and I really enjoy that aspect of the project. Now, if people want to see some of the images that you've created, uh, these isolation portraits in the Upper Yarra Valley, uh, uh, if you want to jump online, www.suzannephoenix.com.au, uh, and then you'll just be able to click on the isolation portraits tab. Um, I really like the the kind of... They, they work as portraits so beautifully because they give us a sense of something about the, the person in the image. I mean, the, the photo of Monique, Marcus, Asher and Oliver, for example, yeah. uh, titled, it has been life-changing. The fact that kind of uh, one of the, the young people in the photo has got their eyes closed, was that deliberate or accidental, no. for example? No, not you know. I'm not a. I don't. I'm a pretty candid photographer. I don't really like asking people to pose. So that was just absolutely as, as it happened. And and I wasn't sure if the family would be happy with that image, but they were, and I love that image. It's, yeah, yeah, that's really to me. But but also the way it's framed and kind of you work in black and white. Tell us about the decision to present these images in kind of what some people would see as kind of I don't know um, basic or unadorned mm. kind of images. How important was it to to present uh, something simple about these images and then allow the viewer to find the complexity in the image rather than bombard them with bright saturated colours or what have you. Yeah, um, I do work a lot in black and white, but particularly for this project, um, I have a theme 
so I have multiple aspects to the work I do, but I do a project which is called Yarra Valley in Black and White, which is a project I started when I first moved back to the Yarra Valley. And um, so it was natural for me for this series to be part of that and be in black and white. But I also really like the aesthetic of... Um, in where, out where I live, there's a very big um, theme or people really love and enjoy those photos from old Warburton and old Yarra Valley. And I wanted to create it in, in a bit of a, you know, in that same kind of um, way so that in, you know, 50 years or in 100 years, those photos may have the same kind of um, response. I love that idea, the fact that kind of you're, you're in some ways consciously continuing a narrative that has existed um, uh, well before you picked up a camera yourself. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Now, um, given that we've all gone back into kind of this strange, isolated world that we are forced to exist in at the moment, you're not having an exhibition uh, of the photos in a traditional sense, but I understand some of the businesses in the Upper Valley, uh, your your photos are displayed in their windows. Yeah, that's right. So there's four um, local businesses uh, in the Upper Yarra who've um, kindly agreed to let me put um, the photos up as transparencies in their windows which I've worked in transparencies a couple of times and I really like that medium it's um it's very old school and um it's very affordable and very accessible it's some of the things I like about um yeah working in that way um and you really have to they're really hard to document it so it's very hard to get a good photo of the transparencies up and you really need to step into them and look at the details because all the details there in the photographs but they're up in a you know a, an animal produce store and a couple of cafes and a baker, um, so I think it's you know it's just a different way to be able to display them and people see them now rather than retrospectively. And there's also something the fact that you are documenting a community, so it kind of makes sense to for the works to be seen kind of um, on site as it were in kind of yeah. shops and businesses that represent the community and that members of the community come to naturally rather than them yep. having to go to a gallery somewhere, a, a slightly more sterile yeah. or artificial environment. Yes, I really like that about it. And, you know, I've had certainly had feedback from people that when they went to get their coffee and they saw themselves and all these people they know and or, you know, what or know of in the community and said, oh, I, I actually felt like I got to see my community again because we're all behind closed doors at the moment, but I actually felt more engaged and, oh, that's what everyone's up to, um, that kind of thing. So if uh, people want to see your work, Suzanne, as I said, they can jump online, www.suzannephoenix.com.au to see the isolation yep. portraits. Uh, if uh, people are already in the Upper Yarra, uh, then the Flying Apron mm. Patisserie, Baruna Produce and Pet Supplies, Nancy's of the Valley and Yarra Valley Artisan Baker works there kind of in the windows as photographic transparencies. transparencies. And I believe you're also um, self-publishing some of the works as well. Yeah. Yeah, so there's two magazines available, um, which people can all, you know, you can actually see them online if you go through, through my website um, and people can purchase them through me, which, again, was just a really accessible way of turnaround time. And, and, you know, I think I've sold over 100 copies of those already, um, you know, all around the world, a lot of them in the in the, in the area. Um, yeah, but for me, that's that really historic do- document you can just hold in your hands and people can keep for their kids for the future. The works are isolation portraits created by photographer Suzanne Phoenix. Uh, as I said, her website, suzannephoenix.com.au. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us on the program this morning. Thank you so much, Richard. Have a lovely day.
Now, one of the things that's been happening around town uh, is arts precincts. They're, they're a hot topic across the country for many people in the creative industries. The one that I've been keeping a particularly close eye on for quite a few years wow. now, uh, Collingwood Yards, uh, which is at the old Collingwood TAFE College on uh, Johnson Street next door to the Tote. Um, I was hoping that any day now there was going to be a glorious public opening and we could wander through the space and look into its nooks and crannies and see the studios and the workshops and the creative spaces and everything that's going on, but a virus has unfortunately nixed that possibility at the moment, but joining me on the line is the CEO of Collingwood Yards, Marcus Westbury, to give us a bit of an update on what's going on down there. Marcus, uh, how close were you to some kind of big, grand public opening when all of this happened? Uh, I, I think in, a, in, a, in that other parallel universe, actually, I watched my diary just kind of, with all these opening events, just go by, you know, that like while I was locked down in the first lockdown. We would, we would have done our public opening in May. We just had our very first um, exhibition opening with bus projects and West Space were due to open the week of the first lockdown. So it was pretty much right as we were um, starting to open up to the public that it all hit. And that uh, instead of opening up, it all closed down or at least was put on hold. Look, for people who don't know uh, much about Collingwood Yards, they've perhaps walked past on Johnson Street or on the, the other side of the block and they've seen development happening. They know that there's something in there that might involve, I don't know, a performance space and some artist studios and uh, some retail outlets or two. But for people who haven't been following the project, what exactly is Collingwood Yards and what does it want to be? Yeah, so um, Collingwood Yards is uh, formerly known as the Collingwood Arts Precinct and various other names, um, is the redevelopment of three buildings um, next door to Circus Oz, not Circus Oz, but next door to Circus Oz um, in the former Collingwood Tafe site in Johnson Street. So um, I think I started on the project about four and a half years ago and we've been raising money and doing work and, and putting together, a, a, I think, a really amazing mix of um, tenant organisations that are moving in or have moved in and stalled or will soon be moving in to that site, um, in the long term will be the home to something in the order of 20 to 30 organisations as well as um, uh, I think we've got about 20 artist studios hosting 40 to 50 art, uh, individual artists working out of the space as well. So it's a, it's a, um, a real hub for sort of small to medium sized organisations, artists, um, and then there's a big public facing area, big central courtyard, um, you know, in a, in a, again in another parallel universe, um, restaurants, bars, hospitality spaces, um, record stores, book stores, cafes, all of those sorts of things that make a public space and it'll be a, a new affordable hub for arts and arts organisations as well as a real uh, centre of community activity in a, in a part of the city where I think arts and creativity are increasingly being sort of priced and squeezed out by all the development going on around there. Now, one of the challenges with creating any kind of precinct uh, is to get the balance right. And one of the phrases that I've heard used by kind of developers, particularly when they were looking at the South Bank redevelopment, for example, they talked about the arts precinct there on South Bank as lacking the, quote, fine grain that builds up over time kind of in the laneways of Melbourne, for example, where you have kind of little coffee shops and uh, boutique clothing stores and a and a record store and kind of all the, and, and some a food outlet all those little bits and pieces that add up collectively together to give a uh, a space a location a lane a street a suburb its personality 
creating something like that from scratch strikes me as as, as a, a definitely a creative challenge, getting the balance right. Talk to us about kind of what people can expect at Collingwood Yards in terms of that mix and that balance and talk to us about the process of, of fine-tuning it as we move towards an eventual public opening, hopefully, uh, before too long. Yeah, so, I mean, look, it, it's been an, an ongoing um, process for us. I mean, I think, look, I, I don't, we certainly don't have that challenge that you get at South Bank where the scale of the individual organisations there tends to make small-scale stuff very um, very difficult. We, we were really fortunate to, to inherit these buildings that have these layers of history and, you know, to a certain extent were designed as classrooms, were designed as workshop, you know, hands-on spaces and naturally lend themselves to kind of clustering lots of small and interesting things together. So inevitably there'll be a bit of trial and error over the first few years. You know, we've, we've deliberately put together a mix of shorter, medium and long-term things ranging from, you know, at the longer-term end of the spectrum, we've got the state government supporting the music market, which is, you know, Music Victoria, the push a number of um, music key music industry organisations. They'll have a performance space. They'll have a, a hub for the contemporary music industry. Uh, PBS, um, am I allowed to say them on Triple R? But they're moving course. in. Your friends from down the road. Um, that you know, be a new long term home for PBS. And then we've got a number of like really great arts organisations and social enterprises that you know already bring a great community to the space. So um, the likes of um, bus projects, West Space. Um, Experimenta, Liquid Architecture, uh, Bad Apples Music, the Barbadillo Foundation, um, a number of these organisations that I, I, uh, the social studio that all have these, you know, amazing communities that they already have relationships with um, that will, you know, will play a really big role in building what what the bigger picture of what we're trying to bring together. And then around that, we're supporting, you know, uh, small to medium, you know, organisations, artists, um, you know, individual studios. But it's, you know, the idea, I think, is, one of the things that's always driven it, it's this idea that you're trying to build a cluster of um, individual, small to medium-sized organisations, communities, programs, activities that once you bring them together, start to bounce off each other to form collaborations and possibilities that are bigger than what any of them, you know, have previously been able to achieve, we hope. So I think I think it's, it's going to naturally be a very rich and diverse community there. And, you know, part of the exercise, which we hope to be a bit more in the middle of now, is about bringing those communities together and um, exploring the possibilities that come with um, being in a shared space. Now, the challenge for all of the organisations there at the moment, uh, whether they're kind of uh, artists, arts companies or um, the, some of the commercial outlets that, that would be selling food and beverage there, uh, is that they can't at the moment. They can't operate as normal. They can't welcome visitors and guests and other artists into their spaces. The uh, Victorian state government have just uh, this week announced some funding to help with, I believe, what uh, rent relief, for example, at Collingwood Yards. They've, uh, so $300,000 has been provided to Contemporary Arts Precincts, the not-for-profit behind Collingwood Yards. Uh, the state government have also assisted the Abbotsford Convent Foundation to assist down there with uh, $500,000 uh, approximately going kind of to the Abbotsford Convent Foundation to assist as well. Why was this money necessary and what will it be used for? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's hard to describe just what a difficult time it was when all this hit us. Uh, you know, we literally had, as I said at the beginning, we had uh, organisations that were in the midst of opening literally just put up their first show and closed down. Um, we had about a third of the tenants had moved in just when the first restrictions hit. And then over the last sort of couple of months, that's kind of 
gradually crept up to a bit over half full at the moment. And there's some that we don't know whether they'll ever be able to move in. So um, like the wider arts community and like the broader community of, of um, pretty much everyone, um, you know, all of these organisations have been hit, particularly at a time when um, they were expecting to ramp up. A lot of them invested a lot in new fit-outs and new programming and all of the things you do when you're opening a new space and then suddenly they find themselves closed and unable to trade. So we are, um, we've been able to, with the support of the state government and some of our philanthropic partners been able to basically provide rent relief to the extent that individual organisations and tenants have needed it. Um, we've been offering that for, I think, uh, four or five months now, and we hope we, at the moment we're planning to offer that for another uh, couple of months. Um, the state government's directly supporting that, and then obviously, you know, we need to make sure that we can manage those extra costs of just things like, um, you know, cleaning and sanitising and all of the things that go with operating in this environment that we certainly hadn't planned for. Um, so this support's been really vital, and as I said, it's it's just it's it's really heartbreaking to see, you know, how much energy the artists and the organisations and the community around us have invested in this, you know, momentum towards opening, and then suddenly find themselves, you know, uh, shut and um, not really knowing what the future is. So you know, our goal is to make sure that no one falls over because they can't get through this period, and then hope to be able to pick up at the other side and um, work hopefully over the summer back towards what we had. Um, always envisioned for the site and for the community. Well, speaking of the community down there, I know that some organisations, uh, social studios, for example, have been uh, pumping out face masks, which I think are selling out almost as quickly uh, as they announce a yeah, new Yeah, good batch. luck getting one at the moment. I encourage everyone to try, but, uh, yeah, the, the demand has been fantastic. And, look, it's been, you know, it, you know, they're a really good example of it. And, and I think to varying degrees, almost everyone we're working with is doing, you know, is, is finding their place in this current environment or, or rejigging what they do. But, uh, yeah, the, the social studio have been making face masks and, uh, uh, for months now and, and, and managed to move in the middle of it. So I'm really impressed with what they've been doing and, um, you know, are continuing to do. And I, I can endorse their product. Uh, their face masks are excellent if you're in the market for one. Uh, what I've been told is jump online just before 9am and see if you can buy one from them at kind of when they go when they announce new stock at nine they are selling out quickly in terms of um collingwood yards more generally how are organizations kind of well sorry not how uh, what are organizations doing to to try and keep some kind of uh cultural engagement going on your organization itself uh kind of uh the behind the scenes kind of facet if you will of contemporary arts precincts are you kind of have you pivoted to to digital and and uh video broadcasting and so forth of the likes of yeah, other tenants look, done the I same mean, look, we're, we're... We really see ourselves as the, you know, like we're the, we're the behind-the-scenes team on this. Like, you know, we're not trying to do the public-facing programming so much. We had planned things like launches and all that stuff that's ground to a halt. We're, we're working, we've been hosting, you know, Zoom meetings and trying to move some of the collaborative, you know, programming and other things we're working on with our tenants online. Um, really pleased to see, like, you know, Liquid Architecture, West Space, Bus, uh, and some of the other organisations have been proactively collaborating together and planning for what comes out the other side of it and had to rapidly sort of switch gear with what they'd planned for later in the year. So we're trying to support that as much as we can. And, um, you know, it, and look, the, the range of impacts has been quite different. Like, we, as you said, the social studio, I don't know if they've been busy. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you because they've only been on site for a couple of months, but this has got to be about as busy as they've been and they've worked really hard to continue to operate and provide a really vital service in the middle of all this. And then at the other end, um, we've got some individual artists who are still able to use their studios 
within the restrictions and then most of what's happening there has been completely shut down and, you know, people are working from home and just trying to get by and hopefully coming up for air at the other side of all this and um, hopefully we'll pick it up in the spring and, and start to do some of those public-facing things. Well, I very much look forward to seeing... Collingwood Yards kind of come through this, come out the other side and open its doors properly and fully to the community. As I said, I've been following the development of the, the precinct for several years now. So kind of a setback, admittedly, uh, but one that all arts organisations around the country have been experiencing. Melbourne at the moment particularly more hard hit. But uh, Marcus Westbury, CEO of Collingwood Yards, thanks for joining us. If people want more info about the site, collingwoodyards.org. You can find out about the tenants and the activities and the plans for the site. And Marcus, uh, I imagine the recommendation is just keep an eye on Collingwood Yards' social media for announcements as to when things may begin to kind of publicly re-engage. And when we um, when we open up again, hopefully we'll have you back on and we'll be able to share the news with everyone. But uh, hopefully on the other side of these restrictions and, and when the sun comes out again, we'll be welcoming people in. I look forward to it. Marcus Westbury, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>